This episode is sponsored by Headspace, meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash P-E-L. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. This is a special reissue of an episode we did on Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit, and we are recording a new intro, sort of a reflective intro on the discussion as it was, and then we are going to provide the full episode. This is Seth Paskin with just the notion of internal thoughts, but not yet a full realized duality of internal dialogue in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Allwan in and for myself in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey reflecting on myself in Madison, Wisconsin. So the homework for this one was to listen to episode 35, the first episode on self-consciousness. And then I also listened to episode 36 as well. Mm -hmm. Those episodes were done prior to Dylan becoming a regular. And we had a guest, Tom McDonald, who was actually excellent, I thought, Mm -hmm. who knew quite a bit about Hegel. And Wes wasn't on it either. Wes wasn't on the second one. He was on the first one. He was ill for the second one. Yeah. Yeah. I fully anticipated thinking that it was going to be like, I thought in retrospect, I was so much more mature as a thinker now and got so much more out of the text myself that our initial treatment of it was going to be juvenile or misguided or something. And I actually thought the discussion was quite good. Lots of good energy. And and Seth, you were just on fire, especially on the on the second one. Thank you. I have a distinct recollection of being super energized by the text. Which also happened this time around. And I think Wes had the same reaction the first time as, and I think this time as well. Yeah. I think the first time I was definitely not as prepared or, you know, I did much more preparation this time around and I was much more into it. I was probably preoccupied with other things 10 years ago. Yeah. So even though I was into it, I didn't devote the same amount of time. Not so into it that you didn't say, maybe I shouldn't have been spending all my time reading Kant and should have been reading Hegel instead. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. When you guys listened to it, did you guys think of anything about the content of self-consciousness, that those chapters that make you think differently since we went spent so much time going through the beginning stuff or reflect on it differently? than before. I thought it was a very good factual summary, but I had a bunch of things. I was just thinking about this sort of journey of self-reflection. I mean, at some level, the self-consciousness stuff is in part like where the meat in Hegel is, right? We become who we are as human beings by reflecting others and that reflection of other consciousnesses in us and then the activity of our own internal duality, internal dialectic and that process. That's the juicy bits, right? No doubt. The first thing that struck me, there were a couple things. The first thing that struck me was, you know, I remember when we read this before, we were very hung up on, is the dialectic, is the project of the phenomenology, is it historical? Is it logical? Is it developmental? And I was very locked into kind of a developmental reading that I think really limited my ability to get at some of the crucial pieces in the text. And it was, I think, somewhat detrimental in the self-consciousness section, because the first sections covering sense certainty and perception and, and the understanding, they read much more like if you do a phenomenological analysis, you don't have to think of them as developmental. But when you get into the master-slave dialectic, it's almost like you're drawn to a reading of 
oh, this is how a child comes to, and this is like the mirror stage or how the child, and we got into these questions of like, do you really have a violent struggle to the death with the other to, and looking at it metaphorically and not developmentally and in the process of the dialectic and a phenomenological analysis, it's much more freeing to understand that he's not talking literally about you having to have a life and death struggle. It's about the concept of negation. And so I just felt listening to it, I almost felt more equipped this time to listen to that discussion. And I was able to connect more with the, the self-consciousness section, which by the way, I'm going to reread. I'm also going to look at Cal Cavage on it in the next couple of weeks. But that was the big thing for me was feeling like this time around with Wes's homework, we had a much better understanding that this is not intended to be a systematic outline. And yes, he's making reference. You can pin certain personalities or ideas in the history of philosophy at these certain stages, but you're not intended to think about this as this is literally how it happened in history. Like we didn't have self-consciousness until after Kant, you know, or something like that. And that comes out very clear in the latter half of the second episode when the subsequent move after the master-slave dialogue or the lordship and bondage section is about stoicism and then skepticism, which don't logically or historically follow if you take the the lordship part as being the Kantian or Dick Cartesian position as Tom did. Those things don't logically follow, but for him, in the progression of the dialectic, they come after. So, But doesn't that mean that they do logically follow in his evolutionary account of consciousness? I agree with you about the lack of strict historicity, but it seemed to me that it's a kind of what's ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny kind of thing. And that skepticism does come after stoicism, and stoicism does come after this lordship and bondage thing, in terms of the evolution and growth, the growth of the organism of self-consciousness, I think he does intend it to mean that it goes in this way, that it's a, a growth of the science of logic is like an organism that's growing over time. No doubt. I guess what I was trying to say was something more like, it makes sense in the logic of the dialectic, but if you were to try to put philosophical systems side by side and talk about how they fit together and how they influenced each other, you wouldn't do it in this way. I found it really fascinating. I found myself thinking about a couple of different things. One was violence and one was internal versus external. So you just mentioned about violence that this happened in the episode as well, about how seriously to take the violence that Hegel speaks of I wonder if we shouldn't take it very seriously that the experience of self-consciousness and the recognition of others is both in an individual's experience, the progress of the dialectic is violent, and in the progression culturally, that it's also violent. Yeah, I think this ties us into a lot of different topics that we've covered in philosophy and even psychology, right? So in a way, Hegel is onto the development of the thematic part of the soul, which almost seems like kind of the sideshow in Plato, right? It's not, but at time, you know, you think Eros and reason, and then what is this spiritedness part exactly? But with Hegel, it becomes the big and constitutive factor, not that the others are important, in human consciousness, just because it's the thing that is relating us to others. So we seek out recognition from others. And it's not just that we seek it out, but that developmentally, 
it's absolutely crucial. And we discussed some of this in our Fonagy episode where our ability to grasp ourselves, to understand our own minds and to understand ourselves as conscious beings is predicated in having a kind of mirror in another person. And through that, we develop our even a theory of mind. So being able to see, for instance, the mother is the first mirror, the first other, so to speak. And so the ability to even give descriptions of our own mental states and connect them to thoughts and words starts with being able to see the mother's face and see, you know, this is obviously more metaphorical. If you're blind, there are other ways of of communicating this, but there's something that the mother communicates and it can be with facial expression that allows you to have a mirror for your own inner states in such a way that you can start to attribute them to yourself. So anyway, I just say that to say that there's tremendous psychological substance to what Hegel is talking Mm -hmm. about. And then to get back to Dylan's talk about violence, I think of Aristotle's account of anger and being slighted. Or I think about Rousseau's account of the flip side of empathy, which is that we make these demands. What does Strassen calls it? We have these reactive attitudes or anyway, we make these demands on the recognition of others. And if they don't give it to us, we get angry. And I think it goes a long way towards explaining oppression and violence. We strongly want recognition from others. We want a mirror and we want it to be the appropriate mirror. Then that's the part of it that's wanting recognition that's a kind of, let's call it respect, you know, in that category, right? And that goes along with status and recognition of status. But the other part of the violence is the consumptive part, the domination part, the part where you are the feeding part, where you're taking things into yourself and making them yours. And that's part of the lordship bondage, you know, back and forth, right? Because it becomes when you fully consume, then you really no, you no longer have the reflection there for you to recognize yourself with anymore, and it becomes empty. But there is that domination as destruction kind of activity, which is the unsophisticated, yeah, as being part of the thematic, you know, going back to that term, the thematic desire, the understanding our desire as being in part that consuming the world to build ourselves aspect. Yeah, I mean, I think it gets mixed up with Eros in a way because we can have that, and this primarily for Hegel, I think this is our relationship to mere objects of desire, like the things we, or or maybe appetite is the word, like the stuff we eat, right? We can, as in the Dionysian mysteries, treat such appearances as if they're nothing and and just destroy them and take them and make them part of ourselves completely destroy the other and be sustained on it but of course we can't do that with other human beings even though we're tempted to (laughs) we're tempted to treat a person like a cheeseburger (laughs) gratify me give me what i want but don't make any demands on me just become part of me Mm -hmm. it's very very codependent maybe i don't know if that's the right word but yeah you find out that you can't get what you want from that right because if you destroy the other consciousness then you've destroyed the thing that you wanted in the first place you can't simply metabolize it and break it down and put it in your cells you got to preserve it in a way as well and that's the interesting yeah part of this it requires ultimately requires reciprocity but we can't dominate a cheeseburger the very concept of domination is already implicated other consciousnesses But reciprocity is required, but we're very bad at, it's always very fraught, right? Trying to achieve that reciprocity is a big problem. And it doesn't have to be physical violence, right? 
could be microaggressions, <laughs> could be all the stuff that goes on socially. It's in a Jane Austen novel that is a struggle for recognition in a way. I think that's a great point. I, I enjoyed the discussion, the idea about the richness of the things that we encounter, objects, and then living, I think it's animals, right, is what gives richness to our own self-consciousness conception of self. Like, if all you ever do is interact with objects, you're going to miss out on something. You're not going to get the richness of experience and you're not going to have the ability to become fully self-conscious. But the process of getting there comes with an affront because part of that process is to think that you can have ownership and domination over everything, so to speak. And so when you're confronted with the first fact of encountering something that you just can't take into yourself, as you said, Wes, your emotional response is to be affronted. Like, why? How? And then when you find out it's something that actually can act on you, you know, thinking about the concept of force, right? Action, reaction, whatever. Then you have the possibility of fear, right? Or anger or whatever. So it's really a rich description of that becoming fully self-conscious means reckoning with the other, like you said, even before you get to mutual respect or whatever, it's to become fully yourself, you have to reckon with an other who is also going through this process. It's super difficult to do. And it's not just an abstract conversation. It's something that happens every day in real life. When people do things that you don't like, or you get resentful, or you, you keep your mouth shut when you want to say something, it's like literally every non-well-adjusted response to a situation <laughs> is the struggle in real life <laughs> every day. This is the thing I was also thinking about, what you just said, well-adjusted response. Part of what Hegel is articulating is, I think I agree with the word, it's a psychology, it's like a pre-psychology, right? And I guess a lot of philosophers, you, you get this, you know, I guess they said they're talking about how we work as human beings. And then there's the, the part about it is, well, what are the fundamental parts of our souls as human beings? The things that move us, you know, you have in Plato, the three-part soul, but here you have Hegel really focusing on the thematic part of our soul, the spirited part of our soul, which he thinks of it as a kind of desire, the thing that moves us as distinct from erotic desire. And he's pointing to it as the thing that moves us out of ourselves, the characteristic motion of us. And then there's the discussion about how is that the best, most flourishing version of itself, as opposed to just sort of its raw behavior, its raw function. So you have both those things going on. And I'm wondering a little bit about, maybe it's just sensible that we just say, well, yeah, you know, when I, I'm using reason to tame that or something like that. Cal Cavage calls his book, The Logic of Desire. So maybe it's that. But Hegel doesn't characterize it as another activity of the soul that is taming this other part of the soul. It's not like he just chose a different part of the soul as the primary mover and is still having reason tame it the way Plato would sort of talk about it, right? Not to overly interpret it for Plato, because maybe there's a, a lot more discussion to have about whether there's one part of the soul that's doing it or sort of the full activity of the soul and the balance between the parts and all that stuff. But it seemed to me that Hegel is somehow thinking that this is the natural state of the spirited soul is to go in this direction and that it gets cultivated in this way. It's not that there's something else that we need to cultivate to do it. We need to cultivate the thing in itself. 
Are you suggesting maybe that reason is a product of the thematic development? Yeah, because I, I guess I'm wondering if he isn't thinking that reason is actually a product of our mm-hmm. thematic character and that that's the end point. That's not a separate thing. It's the thing to which we're aimed. So, yeah, this brings me in mind of another line of thinking. It's unclear whether reason is the product, I'll say, of the thematic if we're going to characterize the first couple sections as the evolution or development of the thematic part of the soul, and then that leads to the development of reason. I think the thing to remember is that the book itself is epistemological. He's trying to understand the true. And what I think is really fascinating is he's basically saying, until you go through this process, you think what you're doing is using... Descartes thought he was using reason for his self-doubt, but really... He was kind of stuck in what you might call the understanding or something less developed and that you have to go through this process to recognize that reason is the only way to get to truth. And then I don't know exactly how the reason chapter plays out. I imagine it's different, obviously, than what Kant and Descartes and others have to offer. But that's what's really fascinating about it is that he's basically saying doing epistemology is an act of self-recognition until you get to the point. It's an act of self-development or self-creation. It's not an act of reason until you reach a certain point of self-consciousness. And that point will involve culture, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. For Hegel, we were thinking and shelling like, what the hell does he mean by self-consciousness? How is that foundational? It seems very abstract. What are we conscious of? And of course, you know, when we go to a play, when we go to a movie, go see a concert, we are doing (laughs) self-consciousness. If we're religious, we're doing self-consciousness. That's a higher form. And and the rational, I think, is implicated in that. And the way I think this all relates back to the thematic, I think of this psychologically, is that the concept of identification here is crucial. And we saw this in Aristotle's poetics where, right, he challenges Plato's more simplistic critique of the arts as being kind of contagious, giving us bad habits and states of mind and making us emotional. And Aristotle talks about catharsis and a more sophisticated way of understanding the aesthetic experience, which is really based on a concept of identification that psychologically is very important. For Freud, this is what the superego and the conscience is built of, identification. So you start off And it's part of wanting the recognition of the other. Identification, wanting that recognition are intimately related to each other. Internalizing certain values so you can identify with your parents and with their values, with what they say is right and wrong, what they say your aspirations should be or your ought-nots should be. And then ultimately we do that culturally. Some of that, again, is negative. You can't do this, you can't do that, but some of it's positive. I want to be a playwright, I want to be a doctor, whatever, those sorts of aspirations that Freud associates with the ego ideal. So all of that, to me, those are processes involving identification as a maturational process, and it's predicated on this whole recognition and thematic stuff where I'm operating on a fantasy of what others will see when they see me. Who do I want to be for others? And culture is kind of... That's a great way of putting it. Built up, yeah, is built up out of that activity. Otherwise, why would we do it? Going to a play or writing a play, and going to play is not like consuming a sandwich. (laughs) Writing a play, why the hell would anyone put in that kind of effort? You need Thumas to explain that. That's a little off track from reason, trying to relate Thumas to reason. 
if I sum it up in kind of like very pithily, I think you've kind of nailed it, which is once you recognize that your essential self is being for others as well as being in yourself, then you have to take seriously how others respond, how you respond to others, how you respond to the culture, how you respond to inanimate and animate objects in your environment, how you respond to yourself. It's like you literally, that's what it means to be fully self-conscious is to take that seriously. And yet we are developing into independent adults. This is really the paradox of maturation, especially during adolescence. It's like, I'm going to become my own person. I'm going to separate and individuate from my parents. I'm going to do what I want, not just what they want or what society wants. Maybe I'm going to rebel a little bit. But that whole process, right, itself involves identification. Like, what if I get involved in the subculture? I take on this identity. So it's a real damned if you do, damned if you don't, seemingly situation. It's a very Hegelian dialectical situation, but it still is possible to, to achieve independence and adulthood and a position of maturity. You know, so it's not like going around, oh, what do other people want me to do? Ultimately, you internalize something. You internalize your own particular sorts of demands on yourself. That's what the in itself for itself is for Hegel. It's who I am is relational. It's determined in part by culture and by social influences. But I draw that back into myself. I go out of myself and then I come back into myself. I think the moment of reciprocity ultimately involves that dialectical back and forth. Discovering what you're for and making what you're for. Yeah. Yeah. You become for yourself, but the for inside you, right, is related to the for that's outside you. <laughs> that makes any sense. But it does make a lot of sense, right? Because it makes things like a notion of self-respect make sense. But you use the example of adolescence, but because I'm, you know, middle-aged, I'm sort of just myself. Of course, crisis, I, same, no, same I think it's, I think, <laughs> I, I think the same kind of thing happens, right? Depending upon different stages of one's life, right? And there's probably interesting things to think about why those things occur at different places. But, you know, transitions of all sorts, I think, lead to this question of this dialectic within the self regarding what you're for for yourself and what you're for in the world and how those are aligned. And adolescence is, of course, an obvious one that comes along with a lot of sort of cultural and biological transformations. I think midlife crisis, you know, so to speak, that category of midlife transformation is another one where you are reasserting or thinking about and that process of in the sort of uh, classic sense, you know, that process of reindividuation, right? Where you're trying to say, well, what am I, you know, I wanted to do my thing. Yeah. And you, <laughs> maybe you thought you did your thing and then you realize, yes. wait a minute. I, maybe I didn't. Maybe I did all the right things. I did all the things that were expected of me. I yes, yes. got the right job. I did that for X amount of years. And then at a certain point, <laughs> it's like after the right number of years, you realize, yeah, I need to redo this somehow and achieve true independence and freedom. And yeah, I definitely feel that right now. Yeah. I just want to quit, not PEL, but quit my job and travel. I have this fantasy now of just traveling Europe for like, or the world just traveling the world for years like that's my fantasy right now even though i know that i would probably within a week <laughs> hate it just want to be comfortable again not being a yeah i like that you highlighted dylan that there's a productive aspect to this we read dewey on education but the idea that culture is external then it gets internalized and then it 
gets reflected out of the individual back into the culture. And then there's, you know, and so how thinking about this dynamic moving from the individual, which is what we've been focused on up until now into kind of more of a cultural or social change and growth and dialectic where it ultimately is saying, you know, you have to change conditions to change individuals so that they can change conditions. And that's also really like well articulated in the social construction of reality that we read a bit of by Berger and Luckman that was part of our social, but it's in Dewey as well. So education is one of those levers you can pull. And if you live in a place like Texas, it's one of those levers you can snap off break so that it's never useful to anyone ever again. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully everybody, this gives you some context as well as uh, just perspective on the episode you're about to listen to reflecting back after 10 years. We all really enjoyed listening to it and we hope you do too. Have fun and good night. Good night. Good night. Hey folks, I have to insert that due to discussions that we had after they recorded this introduction, we decided to release it as the preface to a re-release of the second half of episode 35. The first half of episode 35 is really just a rehash of Hegel's project as a whole of those earlier chapters on sense certainty, perception, force, and the understanding. You have just heard way too much of that, so presumably you don't need it now, but partially examined life supporters can, of course, go listen to that. So what you're going to hear right now is a brief bit from the beginning of episode 35 where we have our guest Tom McDonald introduce himself, and then it jumps to the treatment of the self-consciousness chapter. Now, we're also going to release episode 36 in full out to the public. It's been with 35 behind our paywall for many years. So that will come up in the general PEL feed next week. But of course, if hearing this old episode makes you realize that the old episodes that are behind the paywall are really good and you should become a supporter, then you don't have to wait till next week. Just go to partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support and you can hear the full context in which what you're about to hear was recorded. What is your deal, Tom? Why are you here? Well, I think I posted it to your site and then uh, you found my blog and... Uh I had a lot of stuff on Hegel in my blog. But I think my situation is a little bit like your guys. Like I'm, I work in something completely unrelated to this, but I do it outside as a passion. And um, I think that's what I find really attractive about your podcast is that it has a kind of energy that I think is not the same in uh, an academic type of context. So, you know, I relate to what you guys are doing. Yeah. And you do a lot of uh, volunteer discussion groups in New York City. I run some meetup groups. So I have the NYC Philosophical Reading and another group called NYC Film and Philosophy. Both of them are semi-regular and we get quite a significant group of people. We get some people who've got a lot of background in this, some people who are complete newcomers. So I have some experience too with trying to find that place where you can have a discussion about these things that is not completely, you know, off the farm. And you guys actually tried to read Hegel's Phenomenology like from the beginning with the group of beginners you were mentioning? (laughs) This was a couple summers ago. It was not my group. It was another meetup group. It was kind of the one that inspired me to start my own. And we tried to read the phenomenology from beginning to end. And it was really hellacious. It actually came to fistfights because (laughs) you have... As a matter of fact, I was kicked out of the group. And actually, Sean, if you're listening, yes, you know, I'm here. I'm still talking about the phenomenology. It was an interpretive difference that we have. I mean, there's so many different ways to interpret this book. We got into a debate as to whether you read it logically or historically. And I'm sure this will come up in our discussion right now. I think this is the only time it will come up. (laughs) 
<laughs> this is an object lesson to you children out there. Philosophy does matter. These are not simply abstract conversations with nothing at stake. People can literally come to blows over ideas. <laughs> are they yeah. coming to blows because the ideas matter in themselves? Or coming to blows in the same way people come to blows over which football team is better? Right. <laughs> Elevating the triviality of the material to an emotional tone. Now, I suspect <laughs> given the material, they probably came to blows over the life and death struggle between Lord and Bondsman. It was perhaps suppressed consciously, but that might have been the dynamic that was going on under the surface. He was... You were enacting the yeah, reading, <laughs> as uh, psychoanalysts like to say. You know, now that you met Tom, let's go ahead with our ad break. And we have a new sponsor this time, Nutrafol. 80 million men and women in the U.S. experience thinning hair. This is common, even normal, but it is not openly talked about. So going through this can feel lonely and frustrating it is time to change the conversation and join the thousands of people standing up for their strands with Nutrafol. We have had a hair loss product that we sponsored a couple of years ago. They sent me some drugs and I read about the side effects and ended up not actually wanting to take them. So I was excited to hear that Nutrafol is physician formulated to be 100% drug free. Instead, they use natural clinically effective botanicals for better hair growth through whole body health. So what you do is you go to Nutrafol.com, you take their hair wellness quiz, which will let them figure out what products to recommend for you, what they recommend is specifically formulated for the needs of your age, your biology. They would like to put the power to grow thicker, stronger hair back into your hands. So they'll tell you what you're going to get. You can do all the research you want. And when you subscribe, you'll receive monthly deliveries so you never miss a dose. Shipping is free. You can pause or cancel any time. Now, does it work? Well, in clinical studies, Nutrafol users saw thicker, stronger hair growth with less shedding in three to six months. 72% of men saw more scalp coverage and 80% of women saw improved hair growth after six months. You deserve hair as strong as you are, and Nutrafol can help you achieve your best hair growth naturally. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and using promo code PEL. It'll save you $15 off your first month subscription. This is the best offer available anywhere. It's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time, plus free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code PEL for hair as strong as you are. So if you're like us, and you're probably tired of mindlessly watching and scrolling through material, just trying to find something new and exciting to watch, that's why we've been loving Wondrium. That's Wondrium, W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M. It's the streaming service that our brains just can't get enough of. There's so much to explore. We love it. Wondrium offers endless opportunities to learn something new with thousands of hours of video and audio content, fascinating documentaries, helpful how-tos, and answers to every question you've ever had. And if you're familiar with The Great Courses Plus, then you already know Wondrium. It's the same great service, now bigger and better, and you're going to love it. One of the things that I love about Wondrium is the huge variety of programs they have. Lately, I've really been enjoying the physiology and fitness program. I've finally been learning about the scientific details of the physiology of fitness from a number of world-renowned experts. They've taken me through the components of physical wellness, how they're distinct, and how each is related to overall fitness, all with a combination of scientific underpinning and real-world examples. We know you'll love Wondrium, so we put together a special offer for our listeners, a free trial with unlimited access. Just go to our special URL, wondrium.com slash P-E-L. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash P-E-L. Think of how much you'll learn in a month. 
Go to wondrium.com slash P-E-L. I know, I know, I know. I need to practice meditation. I'm just not that disciplined about my mental health self-care. I can recognize in the moment when I need to step back and breathe, calm my mind, and so on. And that's why I like Headspace. I use it for what I call tactical mindfulness and meditation. Last time I told you about how I use Headspace's SOS meditation for losing your temper to deal with my domestic stress. Well, my challenges don't stop there. I frequently wake up in the middle of the night and have trouble getting back to sleep. Fortunately, Headspace has a meditation for that. It's called, Natch, Falling Back to Sleep. I chose Kasanga as my teacher and favorited the meditation so I can easily find it in the Headspace app without even having to put on my glasses. Used it just last night at 2.34 a.m. Central Standard Time. Now, Headspace is daily mindfulness backed by clinically validated research in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. Whatever you need, Headspace really can help you feel better. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. This is validated by 25 published studies, 600,000 five-star reviews, and 60 million downloads. Let Headspace help you build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule, anytime, anywhere. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash P-E-L. That's headspace.com slash P-E-L for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash P-E-L today. Self-consciousness. Just summarizing 166. So he says, in what's come before, we've seen that there are successive attempts at getting at some sense of a independent thing in itself for knowledge kept turning into a quote mode in which the object is only for another. So again, the contributions of the subject kept getting more, you know, with every step, the for another part kept coming back in. We gave up. This is where I think he's reiterating the Kantian theme of giving up certainty for truth, which means I think giving up things in themselves for objectivity. Consciousness takes itself as an object, but now we get to the point where consciousness will take itself as an object, which means that certainty and objectivity become the same thing, or the being in itself and the being for another are the same. Because I take my I, by taking myself as an object, it's something which has this immediacy for me. Right. We should point out for listeners, so you're probably used to hearing the word objectivity as meaning that's sort of mind independent. Oh, that's objective. But yeah, good point. <laughs> for a phenomenologist, right, if the mind is focused on something, then it is the mind's object and therefore it is objective. And so to say objectivity means, yeah, we've given up things in themselves for objectivity means we've restricted ourselves to the realm of phenomena and objectivity is made possible because we, our mind constructs phenomena and then when we come back to it to make judgments, we can make the concepts accord properly with what we're judging. So the phenomena are these subject-laden objects, and that's how we get objectivity. But we've given up a sort of naive notion of access to things in themselves in order to ground that objectivity. So now we get to the important part of this is this idea that when we take ourselves as an object, we're now in this special position. You could say also that this is sort of the Cartesian moment, and this is like Descartes saying that Aha, the mm -hmm. cogito is the basis of all knowledge because it's so certain. But what Hegel wants to say is, okay, great, but this is just an abstraction because we haven't yet understood how that's possible or why we've arrived at that point. 
we're just saying yes. Descartes, he's got it. He's like, yes, you know, the I is this yeah. uncertainty. But in Hegel's language, every phase of consciousness passes through at least three stages. An early stage, which he calls the immediate there's a middle stage where we find there are problems. We find we don't fully understand this immediate idea that we had. And it comes into discord with the rest of our experience because it's still not adequate to describe or to comprehend the rest of our experience. And then like a late stage where it just falls apart and then a new idea kind of emerges. Right now, we're just at this immediate grasp of self. And so in 167, we get a problem. It seems like a good time, just the way you were describing that, Tom. So remember, Schopenhauer's big beef with this was that Hegel and a lot of other philosophers, he think, did not properly distinguish between the relationships between ideas and relationships between physical things. That according to Schopenhauer, the principle of sufficient reason needs to be clearly differentiated in different realms so that we don't confuse, say, the laws of causality with the way logical deductions work, that we really need to keep those to their proper realms. And Hegel is entirely, I mean, you were just describing it, Tom, in terms of ideas, which sounds like the earlier chapters that we're talking about. We got this idea of this theory of sense certainty, and we examine it, and it ends up falling apart by the end of the section. But in this section, we're going to be actually talking about beings themselves. We're going to be actually talking about organisms who are looking at themselves, and maybe the organism itself is changing. So we're saying, mm -hmm. just like ideas have these changes, the objects themselves have this change. And I can put that sort of to the highest level of abstraction. We've talked a few times about Heraclitus versus Parmenides, the idea of Parmenides. Oh, everything is static. Ultimately, underneath all this apparent change, there's just a static oneness or something like that. And Heraclitus, oh, no, 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 everything is ultimately flux. So Hegel's contribution is, as you probably guessed, he's a version of Heraclitus of everything is change, but it's a very specific pattern of change. It's more like, think of it theologically, God as a singularity. If you want to say there's this entity that is everything, well, at the same time, it is nothing. Because for it to be a particular thing, it has to contrast with something else. For there to be anything at all, there has to be a disruption, a break. And then so you've got part of existence confronted by another part. We've got some sort of division that's been made. And that's sort of where consciousness interpreted in an extremely broad, almost metaphorical sense, I would say, comes from. The fact that whenever you have a difference between two things, you could then adopt a point of view of one of the things sort of looking at the other. And it's only defined as a thing in relation to the fact that there is another thing out there that brings about this recognition of negativity. That even if, as you recognize yourself, I am this thing, you are positing that there is an other. So in other words, there's a negativity in me. I'm not this other thing. So you yes. could take that on any level. You could talk about God. You could talk about natural phenomena. You could, you know, so this is the cycle of life itself. So that's how the dialectic, let's just call this the dialectic, uh, even though apparently that's not a term. Certainly the thesis, antithesis, synthesis, those are actually Fichtean terms and Hegel doesn't really use them, but... <laughs> since they're more popular associated with him. And again, the part of the reason that doesn't work as well, because that sounds like it's applying to theories, right? Here's my thesis that I'm arguing for. Here's the antithesis, another theory. Here's a synthesis that combines those. But he's also talking about the progression of beings. 
You know, what's interesting about that dialectical character of I am not this other thing is that that's not apparent at first. That's the way that self-consciousness doesn't recognize its own act of distinction. We just think it's given. Exactly, and that's 167, right? We sort of get a thin gruel of ourselves in the beginning, right, in 166. That immediate access to ourselves turns out to be this tautologist identity. You know, I thought here of Frege because I thought of the A equals A versus, say, the morning star is the evening star, which is an informative identity. Mm-hmm. So Hegel's saying in 167, you know, this immediate access identity that we have is mere tautology, which is right, A equals A. And what we're after is something I equals that's actually, I, yes. which is actually something that's meaningful. To be meaty and real as opposed to this thin and empty access to ourselves, we have to be able to take something as properly other. And that's where you get desire directed towards the other. There's an emptiness that we have in this tautologist identity that just is desire. The desire for the other that we need in order to get the more substantial access to ourselves. Is the desire quote here in uh, 167 or is that later? I'm just paraphrasing 167. Yeah, that's all there. Let's read the part. Around the middle, I guess, he says, But in point of fact, self-consciousness is a reflection out of the being of the world, of sense and perception, and is essentially a return from otherness. As self-consciousness, it is movement, but since what it distinguishes from itself is only itself as itself, the difference, as an otherness, is immediately superseded for it. The difference is not, and it, self-consciousness, is only the motionless tautology of I am I. But since for it, the difference does not have the form of being, it is not self-consciousness. Here he's talking about the problem with 167, where the immediate access is tautology. And if you go down further, you get the talk of the desire that that sense of emptiness creates. And well, let's talk phenomenologically for a second, that you can have this point of view toward yourself that... It's like you are just a mere point. If you just focus on your minute-to-minute experience, don't think of yourself as a human being or as, you know, having a particular name and being in a particular situation, but just as the pure spectator of the stream of consciousness. It's like the you in there is something that you can disassociate with anything. Even your own thoughts, you could feel like, oh, aliens are injecting these thoughts into me (laughs) or something, (laughs) or this body is not my body. Maybe you're really sick. And so you disassociate yourself. You're, You're in a lot of pain. You disassociate associate yourself from your pain. The fact that you have the ability to do that, that means that the point of consciousness is completely empty in itself, that for there to be a substantial self, you have to make up a self-image. Right. So what he's critiquing is this, I would say, Cartesian or transcendental ego, where being an I, I think he mentions in 166, you know, the I is this sort of supervenes on this identity relationship, which will turn out to be tautologous. I think another way of looking at that is, you know, the I described by Descartes or Kant, it's just this empty assignation which says this set of experiences belongs to the same domain. I'm having this experience and then I'm having this experience and all those are synthetically held together in the same consciousness. But there's nothing to differentiate that I from any other I. Those sets of experiences may differ, but the I itself is just a complete and impersonal abstraction. And I think that's the problem that Hegel's yes, pointing to here. It's absolutely. not it's, it's not real for us, and there's an emptiness to it. I mean, what did you think about this throwing in desire here? Let me just read that part of the quote. Okay. Hence, otherness is... For it in the form of a being or as a distinct moment, 
but there is also for consciousness the unity of itself with this difference as a second distinct moment. With this first moment, self-consciousness is in the form of consciousness, and the whole expanse of the sensuous world is preserved for it, but at the same time, only as connected with the second moment, the unity of self-consciousness with itself, and hence the sensuous world is for it an enduring existence which, however, is only appearance, or a difference which in itself is no difference. I'm still not to the desire part, and I'm totally freaking lost. Do we want to decode that part so far? You mean where he says that self-consciousness is desire itself? That's the next sentence. Okay, so this part that you just described, Mark, yeah. when Khan gets rid of our, and I think he is thinking specifically about him and Fichte without referring directly to him, but when you get rid of things in themselves, and you say, okay, now we only have access to these appearances, which to some extent we've constructed. So for Kant, that grounds I, right? The unity of objects. So that's sort of mm -hmm. a, the seed of what Hegel's going to elaborate on here. It's a unity or experience that grounds the our I-ness. But for Hegel, I think he's saying here, that's not enough. The appearance is sort of a thin thing. Because it's only appearance for us and we've constructed it, it doesn't provide enough otherness to provide that difference which will demarcate an I for us that's real. So if things are only appearances, if we, we've sort of taken a Fichtean position or a, some kind of idealist position where my whole experience world is a part of me in some sense. Well, we had yeah. the Husserl episode where he describes something like that, where everything is based around the transcendental ego and these are all part of my world. Yep. That's not going to be enough to get me a sense of self. Yeah. So remember in Sense Certainty, when we thought we could have these objects which were completely other and set that up in opposition to ourselves and that didn't work. Well, at this point where we just have these appearances, which has already sort of been drawn into the self, well, that's no longer other enough to give us any robust sense of I. The objects that we've considered in the previous chapters are just the objects of nature, mm -hmm. sensuous things. This is a phenomenology of spirit, and Hickel is ultimately trying to say that this is just not satisfactory to us. It doesn't tell us what we are. So that's part of the need to move from the previous forms of consciousness. Mm -hmm. There's a cool quote. It's going back a little bit, but he talks about the sort of irrelevance of the sensuous objects in a passage from Sense Certainty. Is this so about says, the animals eating things yes, up? Yes, he is says, it? even the animals are not shut out from this wisdom, but on the contrary, show themselves to be most profoundly initiated into it. For they do not just stand idly in front of sensuous things as if these possessed intrinsic being, but despairing of their reality and completely assured of their nothingness, they fall due without ceremony and eat them up. Yeah, that's a great one. And all nature, like the animals, celebrates these open mysteries which teach the truth about sensuous things. There's this critique of presence here, too. The idea of fetishizing objects. The self is going to be something that isn't a static thing, that it's moving and it's desire and it's spiritual. All right, so the next sentence then. <laughs> this antithesis of appearance and its truth, which we've just described, has, however, for its essence only the truth. Namely, the unity of self-consciousness with itself. This unity must become essential to self-consciousness, i.e. self-consciousness is desire in general. So this unity must become essential to self-consciousness. I'm interpreting that as it must have some sort of substance to it. Mm -hmm. Yep. It must become a morning star's evening star type of statement. <laughs> Instead of a bare tautology, which of course will end up being, you need another self-consciousness in there. All right, Seth, we haven't heard from you in a while. What do you think about desire? What do I think about desire? I'm in favor of it. <laughs> in this context. Uh, I mean, he's, Oh, not generally? Okay. He's putting human motivation here in the middle of what looks like a 
phenomenological account of epistemology. He's putting. Yeah, I think he's using this word. Remember when Heidegger used the word concern? Mm-hmm. Yes. Ca- sorry, care. Yes. This is, I think, a similar kind of move. So the sentence immediately after that sentence helps to clarify a little bit. So maybe we go to that and then we'll come back to it. So he says, consciousness as self-consciousness henceforth has a double object. One is the immediate object, that of sense certainty and perception, which, however, for self-consciousness has the character of a negative. And the second, vis-a-vis itself, which is the true essence and is present in the first instance only as opposed to the first object. Breaking this down, the idea where he says self-consciousness is desire in general. Self-consciousness has this two objects. There's the object that we typically think of, the traditional object of consciousness, which is what he talked about earlier on in the first three sections, right? But what is that in the case of self-consciousness? He's saying in self-consciousness has two objects. One is the normal object of consciousness. So what is that? No, in self-consciousness, there's two objects. One is going to be the typical object of perception. The other will be itself. So consciousness takes itself as an object and then takes regular objects as objects. And those are the two. Right. The first thing he's trying to say is that when consciousness takes itself as an object, i.e. self-consciousness, what we're not talking about here is consciousness treating itself like it treats perception or sense certainty or even concepts or notions or whatever the understanding. It's the movement, the actual taking itself as an object, self-consciousness meaning consciousness taking itself as an object. That movement itself is somehow different than consciousness taking something that is not itself as an object. And then he uses the word desire, self-consciousness is desire in general, to describe that movement. Self-consciousness is desire at this moment where its access to itself is thin and unsatisfying. Right. It's the tautological access to itself that creates a sense of emptiness. What he's saying in that paragraph you just read, Seth, is that at this stage, self-consciousness is derived from, it's really a matter of contrast with consciousness of objects. It's that thin Kantian, I think, which sort of is inferred from the unity of experience. And what he's saying is that that's empty, creates a sense of movement forward, a desire to get a more substantial form of self-consciousness. Ooh, I like that. I like that a lot. I like that. I want to put that in terms of the double object. The first of the objects is I'm trying to look at myself, but as Hume says, you know, all I see is a particular experience that's going on at this time. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I have this thought in my head. Well, is the thought me? No, you know, so that's why it says it's purely a negative. Yeah, exactly. That's the first moment of self-consciousness. These are both trying to be pointing at self. It's just the first one doesn't find anything. Here in this initial stage, consciousness only has access to itself as a negative in the sense of as contrasting to the field of, or it's inferred from the field of experience. This really is the Kantian or Cartesian moment. Thin, empty, and Kant even will say, no, we don't have any other access to ourselves beyond that. Hegel's going to say, that's not real self-consciousness, and there is something above and beyond that. And at this stage, this Kantian stage, I think, there's an emptiness desire to move towards the real substantial self-consciousness. But it's interesting that there's a partial truth in Kant that Hegel is building on. 
Well, none of these moments go away. It's not like any of us has gotten rid of desire. So you can read it as a temporal story. You can read it as a history of thought. You can read it as simply an elaboration of moments, which are all, they're all included in the final structure. I have a slightly different reading of this because it's open to so many readings. I'm going to claim it's just as valid. Um, (laughs) When he says one object of consciousness is the immediate object, sense certainty and perception. When we were talking before about sense certainty and we said, you know, there's a difference between immediacy and being or immediacy and truth. If consciousness takes as its object sense certainty or perception, it's kind of referred back to itself via the universal, right? That's what we kind of established. Mm-hmm. That that's the negative movement. You say, oh, well, I'm talking about this thing, but actually in order for it to make sense, I have to refer to something outside of it and that negates it. And it says, well, wait a second. What if I'm talking about the thing to which I'm referring? So in other words, sense certainty or perception refer back to consciousness And then consciousness says, okay, well, I take consciousness itself as my object. What am I going to refer to outside of it? It's like, whoops, you know what? We don't have that same movement. We can't take the same move with consciousness taking itself as an object. You can't make the same move as you do when consciousness takes sense, certainty, or perception as its object because consciousness is not going to refer to something outside of itself that is itself in the same way that sense, certainty, and perception do. Does that make sense? I like that it uses the last sentence there, that in this sphere, self-consciousness exhibits itself as the movement in which this antithesis is removed, and the identity of itself with itself becomes explicit with it. So in other words, the two objects of self-consciousness, one are what the arrow is pointing at, which is this empty self, or it's the arrow itself, the looped around arrow, the process Mm -hmm. itself, which, as you're saying, you can't actually make that an object. You can't make the arrow point at itself, but you could still, as a concept, talk about the process of knowing yourself or something. When the thing you're trying to take as your object is the thing to which all these other objects ultimately have to make recourse in order for them to have meaning, there's kind of like a non-objectivity about it, then you're kind of lost. Self-consciousness becomes desire, the seeking, because consciousness isn't really an object in the same way these other things are objects, because it is the thing to which these other objects ultimately have to refer in order for them to have any kind of sense. And then you're suddenly like, well, wait a second, what do I do now? Right? And that kind of kicks off the whole section. Clearly kind of established that it's this kind of empty and dissatisfactory concept of self. But then where do you guys see the move to the introduction of the other self? Several sections later. (laughs) Yeah, we have a ways to go before that. Is it? Because I see, I think it's 170. Well, 168, he's already talking about life. Yeah. So let's read some of that because that's the next step toward it. Through this reflection into itself, the object has become life. What self-consciousness distinguishes from itself as having being also has in it, insofar as it is posited as being, not merely the character of sense, certainty, and perception, but it is being that is reflected into itself, and the object of immediate desire is a living thing. So what do you guys make of that so far? This is a weird... There are a lot of tough and weird paragraphs in this book, but... The next few sections are actually one of the hardest, I think, in the whole... So in 167, right, we had this initial non-robust sense of self-consciousness coming out as a the, the distinction between subject and object, where object is dead inanimate objects, objects insofar as they're simply objects. And he's saying there's a special type of object in our experience, which gives us 
a clue to a more robust sense of self-consciousness. And it gives us that clue because it has a special biological entities insofar as they're biological objects and we see them as living and we recognize them in that way. They're not like objects taken as the, you know, those passive objects of our experience and sense certainty or even as the constructed appearances for Kant. They have their own independence and activity. And that's a clue to a different type of self-consciousness. I don't know if that made any sense. Well, yeah, absolutely. And you might say that speaking from experience, if we talk about being a primitive human being or an animal on the cusp, would you have a sense of self if you didn't see these other things as self-like? Or, you know, like I, yeah. I see the apple, I eat the apple, I move the rock. But when you encounter something that seems to have a kind of independent agency, this actually is the condition for the possibility of you beginning to conceive of yourself as that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It's as if the recognizing something as a living thing will be a precursor to recognizing the other conscious or self-conscious entity that will make the picture more complete. Right? And it would mediate your own access to the concept of yourself as that kind of agency. Add to that, this is from Solomon, that whenever you desire something, you impute an independence to it that is kind of like life. So, you know, if your computer is screwing up, then you start swearing at it and trying to do magic to make it work for you or get the car to start. So just anything that is an object of desire, anything that's in your way, you perceive as a living thing, even if you know that it's obviously not a living thing, but you impute it to something as if it could be cajoled. That seems a stretch, but I th in terms of trying to make sense of what he's getting at here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's right. But it's just that I think in that kind of example, like if I kick my car and I'm mad at it, this is conditional on already being part of, of a world where agency is the primary concept that certainly there's it says something about us that we think that way. But in terms of Hegel's phenomenology, I mean, he's trying to get at this kind of initial genesis of that idea. Like, how do we ever begin thinking that way, period, from the beginning? Like, what was that point where some primitive human person began to get the concept of agency? It would have to have been in some kind of primeval moment where some primitive consciousness perceived other humanoid-type things and, and then began to develop this concept. I guess I would say the same thing that Kant says about causality is that if you weren't equipped with it in the first place, you couldn't get it from experience. You have to impose it upon things. This is something that's built into us. So does it have to be a priori? I don't think Hegel has a priori. I think he's trying to say that none of this is a priori. It all appears phenomenologically. It all comes on the scene uh, through yeah. experience. Here's another way of getting at this paragraph. Basically, I think Hegel's saying, right, there are special types of objects of experience. And you remember we got that in Schopenhauer to some extent, too, where Schopenhauer wants to talk about the body. So, you know, we have access to our own body as something which is both for ourselves and an object to us. I think there's something similar going on in here where Hegel's introduction of this special type of object, which in the end, you know, what he says in the end is it's, it's a clue. We have to get to some sort of capacity to be conscious of other consciousnesses and their self-consciousness. But on the way, there's this very important recognition of something as independent. You know, we don't get the same sense of independence from a rock that we get from a rabbit, obviously. 
So however that happens, a priori or not, I don't know. But the, you know, I think that last sentence of this paragraph is very important. Self-consciousness, which is simply for itself and directly characterizes its object as negative, as a negative element or is primarily desire, will therefore, on the contrary, learn through the experience that the object is independent. Biological objects are an example of a kind of independence that you don't get from the objects with which really Kant was thinking about when he was thinking about our cognition. I think this sort of mirrors Schopenhauer's emphasis on a special type of object, you know, our own bodies. The thing I'm confused about here is that he doesn't seem to be making a distinction between different kinds of objects that fall in that category. It's just the object which for self-consciousness is the negative element. That could be all different kinds of objects. Those are inanimate objects. This meager self-consciousness, which is not so robust because it's only aware of itself in contradistinction to inanimate objects. Oh, inanimate. Wait, wait, wait. So that's meager. So our first step in making this more robust is to get more robust objects. And animate objects are more robust. They're not the passive things. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. No, I do. I don't see it in the text, but I do understand what you're saying. But it sounds like... Up until this point, part of the movement of self-consciousness taking itself as an object is understanding the difference between there being living objects and the objects of our sense, certainty, and perception, Mm -hmm. which taken straight phenomenologically are not necessarily living in the same way we think of ourselves as living. Right. So, in other words, the movement is we have sense certainty, we have perception, we have understanding, all of which is very what we'll call lifeless. And then at some point, when we turn on ourselves and we get this confused notion of ourself as consciousness, as this unity that doesn't make any sense, we suddenly get this idea of life or desire in life somehow, which in turn, we're going to then reflect back out onto the external world and start distinguishing between things which are inanimate and things which have life. To get past Kant, we have to learn that objects are independent of ourselves, and biology is the first step. Okay. This isn't necessarily totally linear and sequential. That's part of the problem, is that we're entering into part of the text that is more historical, that starts to take on this narrative structure of... It's not historical, I'll fight you! A story. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, clearly, if we start talking about masters and slaves, we're talking about more of a narrative situation. And I think that's the thing we're struggling with here. How do you make this transition? You do have to shoot ahead and say that ultimately Hegel wants to say that the first three chapters of the book really are themselves conditioned. They would not have been possible if they were not already a social situation. So we can't think of it as like consciousness doesn't have to get from there to here by itself. No, no, I understand that. So, call it logical, don't call it developmental, whatever you want. I'm just trying to understand what the frick he's saying here, which I have a way of reading that now. I think I understand what he's saying. I think you want to say fukenzeit. (laughs) I was going to say fukenzeit. But, okay, I think I got hung up on the word unity because it seemed like this paragraph was trying to point out that the turn taking yourself as an object kind of gives you a concept of a unity as well. Well, I would say, and that is totally connected, I think he's introducing the experience of a social situation right here. In 170, he says, the self-sufficient members exist for themselves. However, this being for itself is likewise, and even more so, immediately their reflection into unity. Just as this unity is estrangement into self-sufficient shapes, 
So I think what this means is that this scene I would try to paint of primeval ape man encountering and just barely trying to get some cognitive sense of his others. And he understands himself as an agent through seeing other things that are like him. And so right there you have multiplicity. You would not have this concept if there weren't multiple of this kind of thing. Does that make sense? It's difficult. I mean, I think he's talking about sexual reproduction in 170. <laughs> okay. Well, no, listen, uh, there's a way of reading this, I think, that the concept of the social as it's introduced here, Tom, is still somewhat limited, although you're right, it's presupposed, I think, throughout. We don't really get into it until a couple paragraphs later. I mean, a lot of 169, just to sum it up, is about the individual members surviving by leaving offspring. What? <laughs> Seriously. I think we have to read it. Yes, there's the metaphor of the continually cancelled self-otherness in rotation. It is this very flux as a self-identical independence, which is itself an enduring existence, in which, therefore, they are present as distinct members and parts existing on their own account. These are the objects. So, consciousness These are living, is the... living things. Consciousness is the enduring existence, and the objects of consciousness are these distinct members that exist. The distinct members are like the specific rabbits. Uh, sure, specific rabbits or whatever. Being no longer has the significance of abstract being, nor has their pure essentiality the significance of abstract universality. On the contrary, being is precisely that simple fluid substance of pure movement within itself. The difference, however, qua difference of these members with respect to one another consists in general in no other determinateness than that of the moments of infinity or of the pure movement itself. Okay, that didn't help at all. <laughs> but just like in paragraph 168, there was something about unity and life coming to bear. 169, he seems to be saying something about the experience of self-consciousness. When consciousness takes itself as an object, you get the concept of the notion of enduring existence, that persistence through time that is the unity of the self. And that the things outside of the self are differentiated, but they're all part of some continuity. In other words, consciousness is the thing that holds everything together. Yeah. And when consciousness looks at itself as an object, it understands for the first time that this whole manifold of individual things that are differentiated and all that stuff are held together by this one, not just any, you know, not a universal, but a particular thing, a particular essence that is itself. But, you know, when he talks about the unity, I think he's making a claim more for us, the readers, the phenomenological observers of consciousness. He's saying that, look, the individual members gain this access to a sense of themselves as an individual agency by it seeing it at work in others. And so we grasp it, the unity of this situation, but consciousness doesn't necessarily grasp it for itself. Okay. These two pages in the book, this, these four paragraphs here, 168 through 171, are just... They are, and they're, they're famous for being almost incomprehensible. My, you know, bullshit comes from a lot of commentary that I read, so <laughs> it's really not fair. But to me, they're the meat, so let me throw out this general characterization, see if we can agree on it or not. Whether we're talking phenomenologically or if this is a self-experience, like growth movement that consciousness goes through, the unity of the self, its persistence through time, and the way that it brings together perception and sense certainty into a unified whole and is able to actually create distinctions and all that stuff. 
and the ability to distinguish that its objects are independent of it, all of that requires that consciousness take itself as an object. If consciousness was not capable of taking itself as an object, you would have none of those things which are characteristic of what we call existence or life. Is that a fair assessment? Sure. Just from our own experience, you have a sense of yourself. You're thinking about, what am I going to do today? What am I going to do tomorrow? In the most ordinary, everyday experience, our sense of ourselves is conditioned and mediated by the context and the whole world situation that we're in. We position ourselves like, I'm going to go into work and tell my boss he's an asshole or something. Our own sense of identity to its core is related to our possibilities for relating to the world. He's just trying to say that there is no self-access or self-identity without this relationality. See, I think he's saying, well, he might be saying that <laughs> as well, but I think he's saying our experience of life as life as we know it, meaning a continual flow of events that's unified and a sense of an enduring substance that is us, is the relation of consciousness to itself. All that stuff takes place as a function of consciousness taking itself as an object. Consciousness to itself mediated by all this other stuff. Yeah, yes. I mean, I have a kind of a problem with that formulation. You have to bring in the mediation of genuine otherness. I think this radical difference of the other, the fact that the others are really there and really other agents, is what mediates the possibility for me conceiving of myself in the same way. So you can just as equally say that self-consciousness is a function of the other, is to say that the other is a function of self-consciousness. Let's be more specific, because you just capitalized other, which we weren't talking about here. Consciousness has two objects. There's the object of consciousness that is sense certainty and perception. That's one kind of object. That's one kind of other. And then consciousness also can take itself to be an object, can take itself to be other. And what I take these four paragraphs to be doing is talking about the significance of consciousness taking itself as another. Yeah, and I think it's not possible to signify oneself. As a matter of fact, you know what? There's a paragraph here where he talks about significance. To Just to shoot ahead on this point, but at 197 he says, To think does not mean to think as an abstract eye, but as an eye which at the same time signifies being in itself. That is, it has the meaning of being an object in its own eyes, or of conducting itself by way of the objective essence. He's criticizing Descartes here. He's saying, you can't just say, I am I, but you have to signify. You have to have gained this idea that, for instance, we're communicating right now and we're using language, and when I say I, both you guys and I myself understand that I'm referring to myself. I give significance to the fact that I am I through language. And that's what's missing in Descartes. We can't give significance to the I without a communicative situation. So that's why I think you just have to bring in the real concrete other. Can I pull out my old Saturday Night Live reference? Yeah. Tom, you ignorant slut. <laughs> <laughs> I have no response to that. No, no, no. So I get your point. I'm, I'm ready, I don't I, think, actually, I, don't think I was... I'm ready for a life and death struggle, maybe. <laughs> Are you good? I was not trying to make a Cartesian move with this at this point. There's the significance of consciousness taking itself as an object. It's significant. 
And it's different right. somehow from taking other things as objects. And it, there seems to be so much bundled in it that he just kind of crams into those four sections before we get on to everything else. I was just trying to throw that out. I think the point of these sections is that the awareness of life enriches the thin version of self-consciousness that we started with. So just to sum that all up, and if you look at 173, he says just that. In the course of its experience, which we are now to consider this abstract object which will enrich itself for the eye, the abstract conception of self-consciousness, and will undergo the unfolding which we have seen in the sphere of life. So we're starting with the thin version of self-consciousness, and now we're getting into an unfolding which will mirror the kinds of unfolding that happens in life. Life is a good example of, you know, where we started with our abstract self-consciousness. Life is a good example of concrete universals in natural kinds that's my high-level take on all that, is the importance of our awareness of life to the enrichment of self-consciousness. Yeah, Wes, I like your summation there. I don't know where the thin concept begins and the difference between thin and thick, whether it's developmental or logical or historical or what have you, but I, I like that. I think there's also, in terms of Hegel's larger project here, the fact that the thinness of this concept of self is just that bare, either Cartesian or Kantian self, reflects Hegel's critique of enlightenment. He thinks that the enlightenment concept of selfhood is primitive. And ultimately, this is his kind of critique of modernity and mechanistic thinking in general. Selfhood was won through this difficult process, and it has this underbelly that's sort of ignored by the sort of standardized utilitarian concept of self that enlightenment has. Mm -hmm. I'd like to throw a wacky interpretation in here, because this was my interpretation. I read this as a sophomore. This was actually my first philosophy course, because I was like in the honors program at the University of Michigan that they let you sign up for whatever course you want, even if you don't have the prereqs. I signed up for this contemporary continental course with Fritjof Bergman that I had no business being in because I'd never taken another philosophy course. And this was virtually the first philosophy book I read in college, this section. And I was completely fascinated by it. And the reading that I gave it at the time, which I don't think is completely unique, you know, as we're talking about it and, and these commentaries we read, even though he's talking entirely abstractly, we're trying to put the everyday facts of life as we understand them into it. So when we talk about oh, you gained a greater understanding of yourself than we put in there. I identify myself as a father or something like that. Whereas the way that I read this initially was something more radical that, for instance, when he's talking about life, we are just imposing, oh, he means living things. He means rabbits and stuff like this. But I was, I was thinking of him defining life as anything that has this sort of internal reflections Anything that has enough complexity that we attribute autonomy to it, which is, in retrospect, a very Dan Dennett sort of stance, almost behaviorist. You know, so if the computer, again, it has eaten my homework and I, I start swearing at it, it's because it has enough complexity that it sort of is useful for me to think of it as having goals or something like that and addressing that on that level, as opposed to getting in and fiddling with my memory card or getting into the DOS or whatever crap like that. So that he's giving a really radical description of what life is, of what what consciousness is. And in this section, the craziest thing about it is that it seems like we have a flexible notion of self. This idea that I am this body, there's something arbitrary about that. And we've seen that in Heidegger, that like if you're using a tool, it's like the tool becomes part of your body. I mean, there are even things on our bodies. Like I consider my fingernails part of my body, but I don't 
feel in my fingernails any more than I feel in the hammer that I'm holding. It's just merely a pragmatic convenience why I consider this part of myself and something else not part of myself. And so that the big point here is that we could have a self, maybe this is what spirit is all about, a self that is a group of people. This whole notion of organism is flexible. What spoke to me about this is reading about mystical experiences and people like I experience myself as the cosmos and saying, wow, maybe there's actually an ontological basis for this kind of experience. Maybe the seed of consciousness is to some extent arbitrary. The fact that we put it in just me as opposed to me plus this entire room and that's the organism or something like that. Well, no doubt, you know, Hegel wants to justify the fact that thought is not simply in our brains. You know, it's in the world. And I think that the point about organism is really crucial, too. In one of the, I have this Cambridge companion to Hegel, and one of the essays says that basically, you know, if Hegel has an ultimate metaphysics of the universe, it's organism. And if you sort of disagree there, that's sort of where it falls. There's the clockwork universe, and then Hegel wants to say that in an organism, everything is related. The parts are all related to the whole, ultimately. So if that isn't right, then Hegel isn't right. All right. Next time, we are going to talk more about this very same damn reading, but we will finally get to the lordship and bondage portion of uh, chapter four or B. We really have not gotten to the juicy bits. I mean, Master and Slave is just an awesome and phenomenal piece of work. Everything we've discussed now, it's too bad. It just doesn't compare to how awesome Master's All right. So, so listeners, if you are frustrated by the fact that we <laughs> seem to only get through four pages of text and spend a lot of time talking about preliminary stuff that wasn't even supposed to be the focus of the episode, next time, that's when the juice will come. I do not see how it would be possible for us to have a coherent conversation about the juicy part without having had salad first. So... <laughs> In fact, I think what we talked about was juicy. Maybe it was a little leaner. It wasn't like the fatty part of the meat that's got all the flavor in it. It was thin. It was, mo- it was, it was moist. It was a thin self. If you're not going to take my bait on the, f- the self is flexible and the world is organism, fine. It'll be dry. Fine. <laughs> Mystical man, I can eat some mushrooms and I can be this desk man. Hegel <laughs> on mushrooms is definitely better. Thank you, Tom. Well, thank you guys for inviting me. It's actually, it's a thrill because I really am a fan. You are a tremendous and welcome addition. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Good night, everybody. All right. Good night. Good night.